재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 In this week's Planet Korea, a look at the big North-South Summit. The historic moments are about 24 hours away, just a bit over 24 hours away. And we know details about the menu and what's going to be served at lunch and dinner, but we still don't really know the substance of what's going to be discussed and what the outcomes may be. That will change in just about 90 minutes from now. At 11 a.m., there is a scheduled press conference at the main press center over at Kintex, and they're expected to announce uh, a summit agenda. We don't know how detailed that will be. So in the meantime, we've got to do some educated speculation, and we have the perfect individuals here in the studio to do just that. Christopher Green is a senior advisor for the Korean Peninsula to the International Crisis Group, a Belgium-based consultancy that provides crucial research for decision leaders around the world. And Dan Pinkston is a longtime expert on proliferation issues, especially as they relate to Korea. He is a lecturer with Troy University in the United States. Dan and Chris, thanks for being here. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. So we're on the doorstep of this North-South Summit. I'd like to know what the big question or the indicator that's on your mind. What are you looking for specifically as this uh, summit takes place between North and South? Well, hopefully dialing down the tensions and the risk of conflict is always a positive development. And if we look at the inter-Korean relationship, there are a number of issues on the agenda. Human rights, separated families, they share a boundary. There's scientific ecological information to share confidence building measures in the conventional realm of um, the military standoff they have a number of issues and of course uh, they both claim to be the sole legitimate government of the korean people and of the the territory so they have much different dynamic than outsiders have that's right the, it's important to just put in place some structures for future discussion too right don't do anything that is too controversial so modest goals uh the thing i struggle with is that supposedly the bottom line is denuclearization for everybody and only the u.s can cut that deal that will get north korea to denuclearize in any meaningful way so why have this summit first This was an easier event to organize. The relations between South and North Korea were what kick-started this process of dialogue in 2018. I think it makes sense. There's also a symbiosis developing between the South Korea and the U.S. perspectives on dealing with North Korea. North Korea knows that the sort of the economic assistance it might seek from South Korea isn't going to come without significant progress on the military side with the U.S. So these two things are connected very closely, and the order doesn't matter so much. Mm. This kind of thing, for the better part of a decade or more, was confronted in six-party diplomacy, multi-party diplomacy. Why is it suddenly a good idea to have summit-level diplomacy in these multiple channels? Well, we should also remember that in the 1990s, there were the four-party talks, and there was bilateral diplomacy. There are trilats that are held depending on the issue area. So I like to look at it that way. So looking at a specific issue area, who are the stakeholders, who can bring something to the table, who can help resolve the problem, um, then that will determine the actor. So a six-party institution in the security realm, there's a a logic or an argument for that. The two Koreas have inter-Korean issues that they 
need to address and only they can address. And then a larger kind of minilateral group can address uh, regional things. You know, there are a lot of things like fishing problems, environmental problems, you know, consular problems. So people that are off on the other side of the planet, they only focus on denuclearization. But these other problems are present and ongoing in the region. And these are some things that they have to address as well. I'm not saying it's as important as denuclearization, but leaders and bureaucrats here, they have to deal with those things as well. There's also an optics question, too. The North Koreans declared the six-party talks dead many, many, many years ago. For us to be sitting here talking about reviving them is anachronistic, bordering on silly. Yeah. We need a new framework to move forward from here. We need to swap the scene a little bit. Yeah. And nothing's going to do that quite like the presumed optic we're going to see of Kim Jong-un walking right across the military demarcation line and perhaps a handshake right over the line, Moon ushering uh, Kim Jong-un, Jong-un over to the peace house. That in and of itself, does that have power or is that just a photo op? I think it has great power for the domestic South Korean audience, mm. but we'll have to see exactly how that plays out. Kim Jong-un has proven to be a master of bold moves. The optics he clearly understands pretty well. Sending his sister to South Korea, for example, at the beginning of the year is a way of elevating this moment of diplomacy from past moments where Mm. South and North Korea have interacted. So he clearly gets that very well. Uh, The language we hear from Moon and from the Moon administration lately is intermediary, uh, broker, that kind of thing. I will parse North Korea for the United States and vice versa. Does that create any kind of alarm that maybe the U.S. and South Korea aren't speaking in a unified voice, that one has to intermediate for the other? Well, the the U.S.-North Korea summit, the announcement and the acceptance of that was on very short notice. Mm. Usually, summits occur after the bureaucrats at the working level have done a lot of the legwork and have reached agreements that are pushed up to the top. And then once they agree, then they will hold the meeting, sign the documents, whatever agreements they've drafted, do the photo op and go home. This is kind of in the reverse order. So for some people, they argue that in North Korea, this is a a more desirable way to go because if you negotiate at the lower levels, the bureaucrats... Mm. In North Korea, they have to follow the party guidance, so they ha- they're very rigid. But if Kim Jong-un agrees to some broad parameters of, of some agreement, and then he gives the marching orders to the bureaucrats, saying, now go work out the details of this, they will be empowered, and that negotiation process might go a little more smoothly. So whatever comes out of these meetings, the details will have to be worked out. Those agreements will have to be signed, and of course, they have to be executed and implemented later on. We saw the same thing when the delegation from South Korea went to Pyongyang. They had meetings not with working-level officials or senior people. They had meetings with Kim Jong-un himself. So what Kim Jong-un will have ordered during those meetings uh, will have to be carried out. So that sets the framework very solidly for acting on those orders. Mm. We've kind of heard these trial balloons of a peace agreement or announcing a possible end to the war or announcing that we're striving towards peace. What do you envision that statement's language being like? Well, diplomats and writers, they can draft lots of great language for that. And they've done it in the past. One simple thing would just get North Korea to fulfill its previous commitments. There are already some very fine and excellent agreements that have already been reached. There's the July 72, July 4th agreement. There are the summit agreements from June 2000 and and October 2007. So there are a number of agreements already in place. So first of all, we need to uphold the armistice no return to wartime conditions, and then move to those other agreements. If North Korea would simply 
act in good faith to fulfill its previous commitments, we'd be in a pretty good place already. But it's one thing to bring some of those commitments forward into a new agreement. It's quite another to go into the negotiating table and say, you should be fulfilling the things you agreed to in 2005 or 1970, whatever. So it's a, you can bring some of that information forward, and you probably should. But it's at least not in enough. spirit, right? At I mean, least in spirit, absolutely. Might we hear a bilateral declaration that the Korean War is over, regardless of what the rest of that paperwork says? We might do, but what would that mean, hmm. right? There's a lot of signatories to that armistice agreement. South Korea is not in a position to declare the end of the war by itself. So that would merely be language, wouldn't it? Well, the armistice was a mill-to-mill agreement. It was an agreement amongst uh, military commanders. A peace treaty or a peace settlement would be a political agreement. In fact, that's what the armistice called for, like at the end of it, said they recommended a, a political conference to address the political issues. And here we are, how many decades later? Right? I just wonder to what extent do you reckon north-south outcomes of this summit would be sort of inoculated against uh, any failure of the U.S.-North Korea summit? Well, I think Moon... And many of his supporters believe that engagement and interaction with the North will transform them over time. That was the basis of the Sunshine Policy and the Peace and Prosperity Policy under uh, Nomi Hun, where Moon was the, the chief of staff. I'm very sympathetic to that myself. You know, there's a big academic literature on that. And I've been looking at more of the kind of human interaction in a more abstract, constructivist sense, and having those interactions, whether it's sports and arts and music and so forth, that we can change people's perspectives and viewpoints. They take on a different identity where they're not aggressive to outsiders. They don't believe that um, the rest of the world and the rest of the people in the region are trying to invade North Korea and take them over and kill them or turn them into slaves, which is much of the, the state media and propaganda claims. So... I think Moon wants to push those things, and the good news about that is it doesn't violate the sanctions regime. So to move on to more economic stuff, they're really constrained by the UN Security Council resolutions and so forth. So I don't know how they're going to do some of those things. They're going to have to – there's a very narrow set of areas that they can do economically, some kind of aid, humanitarian assistance. Of course, humanitarian stuff, um, there's pressure for that in the south amongst the constituents, and I think there's – convergence with the conservatives as well. People would really like to see uh, human rights improvement, but how we get there, that's where we have uh, some disagreement. Yeah. So, I mean, the things like family reunions, more K-pop concerts, uh, a little bit of this and that, that can withstand even if there's a setback in the U.S.-North uh, Korea summit. It's certainly going to be the case the Trump-Kim summit won't be so terrible that it will return us to disastrous confrontation straight away. So, I think we can be ready for dialogue on both the inter-Korean and the US-North Korean side to proceed past that summit. What will happen after that, we don't know. So I would say, though, that the process can withstand the kind of possibilities for disagreement that might come out of that summit. Can the US-North Korea summit afford to produce anything other than uh, a grand bargain or a big vision uh, in terms of uh, what it achieves? It's summit-level diplomacy between the presidents. There's no next step if that fails, right? You have to hit a home run or go home, don't you? The nature and the complexity of the issues that concern both parties, those are not things that can be addressed in a one-hour, two-hour, three-hour meeting. Mm. So to at least set the environment and set the stage for serious, in-depth discussion at the working levels to address the WMD problem, the ballistic missile problem, how do you turn uh, an ICBM program into a seriously peaceful, incredibly verified peaceful space launch program 
So things like that would have to be worked out in, in um, excruciating detail. And what kind of incentives are you prepared to offer? That needs to be negotiated as well. What's the minimum standard that you hold in your mind as calling the the two summits, but especially the U.S.-North Korea summit, a success on denuclearization? That's a good uh, question. That's the, the big question. It's subject to interpretation. And I suspect that the diplomats and the writers draft up that language will created in, in such a way that um, would be subject to interpretation. What I see from the, the North Koreans is that they're committed to this goal in this abstract way. Basically, when we go to global zero, as I interpret it, and the statement from the Central Committee meeting, it seems to me that it's, it's in the, the context or in the spirit of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, Article 6, where the nuclear weapon states are supposed to bargain in good faith to abandon their nuclear weapons. So North Korea is kind of alluding to that kind of idea. However, they're not even in the NPT. So they're not even within that. Non-proliferation treaty, yeah. Yeah, so they're not even in that. And so they kind of carve out this exceptional space for them, which they're very good at doing. Um, Very ambiguous language that carves out this exceptionalism. And then they can continue to, to move on. So I'm quite skeptical. It's a bit of a cynical view of uh, denuclearization. The idea, you said global zero. So when everybody else gets rid of all their nuclear weapons, so will we, uh, is sort of the, the idea behind that, right? Right. So uh, the, the North Korean media and leadership, they put out statements saying, we don't need our nuclear weapons when a uh, security threat is no longer exists. So on the outside, people interpret that to mean you know, some kind of negative security assurance or something like that. But from North Korean perspective, from their ideological underpinnings, they view the world as a menacing Hobbesian world where they are under threat. So unless they change this ideology or somehow the world changed and everyone bought into the Sun Gun revolution, we all became you know revolutionaries uh, supporting the Kim view of um, the revolution – then um, maybe that would would happen. But I'm not seeing those changes. And they would announce it. So Kim's a young man. Maybe he'll come out with some fundamentally different view. Okay, we're taking a completely different perspective. We're changing the Byung-Jin line. We're going to this different line. We're going to be an outward, open, you know, country. We want to integrate ourselves with with the international community, with the rest of the world. So we don't need WMD. But I'm not hearing that. They would have a name for it. They would have a, a plenary meeting, central committee meeting, and then announce it. And it would be broadcast all over the world. There'd be we more would signs, yeah. Yes, we would know it immediately. Presidential level diplomacy on the issue of denuclearization, does it amount to de facto recognition of North Korea as a nuclear state? That's the danger and the risk. That's what concerns me. Why does it concern you? Well, because that's what North Korea has been uh, seeking for many years. I was just talking about carving out that exceptionalism getting that status as a nuclear state, as they call themselves. And kind of like Pakistan, they look at, you know, India would be the perfect model, but those countries never signed the NPT. North Korea signed the NPT and uh, safeguards agreement with the IEA. They never fulfilled their commitments under those agreements, and they left the treaty under very dubious conditions in that, that is questionable. So it's a different case. Every proliferation case is different, but we have to do all we can to avoid the use of even one nuclear weapon anywhere in the world in uh, anger. So it's a very, very serious issue that we have to do everything we can. And it is extremely complicated. The, the, the statement that came out of the committee meeting at the end of last week that Dan mentioned a moment ago 
talks about things like nuclear safety. It talks about things like nuclear nonproliferation. These are things that we do have to care about, and we do have to talk to them about. And any act that is less than denuclearization is indeed approaching de facto recognition of them as a nuclear state. So how do you square that circle? It's very difficult. But you cannot simply abandon the idea of discussing nuclear safety when you have a chance to do so. Do you view it as realistic that North Korea might migrate back to those uh, nuclear norms that it left behind all those years ago? I think their norms and their principles have been very consistent. But we'll only know that with certainty after they open the archives sometime in the future. Um, (laughs) But if North Korea actually wants to be less threatening and more cooperative with the outside world. The nuclear peace is very difficult and long, even on the technical side. Some people are saying, this needs to be a done deal by the midterm elections in the U.S., which would be in November. It's just virtually impossible. Just to get an inventory of all their materials and sites and facilities and everything else will take more time than that. And then it has to be verified. Then it has to be secured and things have to be destroyed or or, um, dismantled and so forth. And that takes years. It takes several years. But in the short term, if North Korea is serious, what I feel they should do and what should be asked at the summits is that are you willing to sign the Chemical Weapons Convention? Mm. The CWC um, does not have any grandfather clause like the NPT does. All signatories have to declare, verify, and destroy all of their chemical weapon stocks. So uh, the first country to do so was Albania, believe it or not. The second was South Korea. And the South Korean case is interesting because they signed a confidentiality agreement where it's done secretly. They verify, but you do not have to go through this public humiliation if it's embarrassing politically. Mm. But they, they do it and they do verify that the stocks are destroyed. And so North Korea could do that. They continue to deny that they have chemical weapons. The strong consensus is they do. We saw what happened in Kuala Lumpur Airport. Um, last year. So um, no one seriously believes their their denials. But if they want to stick with that and not be humiliated and embarrassed publicly, they can sign a confidentiality agreement, clean this stuff up. And for me, getting rid of that stuff would be a win. So if we do that in the short term, but if North Korea says, oh, no way, no way, and they're dragging their feet, I think that's an immediate indicator of their intentions. Are you really serious about being less threatening Um, If you won't even sign the CWC, I mean, we can forget about the denuclearization. We don't have to waste the time. After all, signing the CWC has no ideological significance for North Korea. So it's something that they can do without any significant political cost domestically. I suppose they'd have to admit they had been untruthful before. No, no, because they can sign a confidentiality agreement. And then the reports, everything is um, redacted and and, um, they keep it confidential. But then we get people on the ground, um, destroying their stuff, and it would, could be subsidized. I'm sure the South Koreans could support that. It, you know, the, the North Koreans wouldn't have to pay any costs for that. And if we offered them a carrot, that, hey, if you do that, we'll invest in um, modernizing your chemical industry for peaceful purposes like uh, chemical fertilizers and mm. things like that. And that could be done quietly without the public humiliation. If they even refuse to do that, then how are we going to get far down this road on denuclearization? That's interesting. Baby steps. Do you imagine this North-South Summit could produce – it's going to produce a lot of peace optics. It's going to produce a lot of good feelings. Uh, Does that create the space for any sanctions by any party to be – loosened uh, perhaps by China or unilateral sanctions uh, to create a little bit of relief for North Korea? Yeah, I'm sure it would. There's a, a sequence you could foresee where North Korea's 
is economically incentivized, the easiest, the lowest bar for them to get over would be to get the Chinese to stop enforcing whatever level of sanctions they were previously enforcing. Arguably, that may already have started happening. There's anecdotal evidence of workers returning from North Korea to China and things of this nature. After that, you might be able to, as long as the process goes well with both the US and with South Korea, get the South Korean side, which is anyway predisposed towards investment in North Korea, to find a way in collaboration with the international community to be able to invest in North Korea. So there's a sequence from low bar to higher bar. To get to the UN Security Council, to get to US Treasury sanctions, that's a long way down the road. Uh, but there are some incremental steps that can be taken in the meantime. Just as a final thing, the Kaesong Zone and the Kumgang Zone, they are in the deep freeze. Nothing about this summit will change that or will it? Or could it? I'm doubtful because of the sanctions. So it's very difficult to transfer money I don't see how that's going to happen. Maybe some tourist uh, cooperation instead of uh, Kumgangsan. They're making a new uh, tourism site in the Wonsan area. Maybe they could bring some tourists in there. But it might have to be set up on some kind of barter deal mm. where South Korean gives them rice, the equivalent in, in rice. The Kaesong Zone has an interesting domestic context too, though. It would fall, reopening it would fall foul of sanctions if you did it today. But... Domestically, there is the argument that a lot of people on the Moon administration's side are saying that the Park Geun-hye administration closed it based on no evidence illegally. There is a significant societal debate here in South Korea going on about that. Mm. I'm not sure that even if the left wins that debate, they're going to be in a position to reopen Kaesong because of the sanctions question, because of the international partners question. But that is certainly something to factor in that's uh, worth watching. Okay. When you muse about the summit and think about what could happen north-south, is there any sort of surprise? Because we've heard that this is a summit potentially of surprises. Kim Jong-un is adept at surprising uh, his counterparties. Well, I think what his um, grandfather had done and other communist leaders have done is to make these very grand proposals. Kim Il-sung used to make these proposals about this one-shot, quick, confederation let's just unify as a confederation let's take immediate steps right now and cut our militaries down to 100,000 on each side and uh these kind of proposals that can't really be accepted right so you wonder if they're really sincere or not and then when they're rejected you can blame the other side you know um kim jong-un might come with some very broad grandiose proposal that's maybe unacceptable that might be a surprise but considering past behavior maybe it wouldn't be a surprise chris when you go to the wild side what do you what do you envision Rumours of withdrawing troops back a significant different distance from the DMZ on both sides, further than, uh, than now, removing all heavy weapons from the, from the border region, setting up places for constant separated family reunions. The idea that all of these things would happen, it's pretty far-fetched, but if it did, then of course I'd be happy about it. Let's see. Chris Green, Senior Advisor to the International Crisis Group, and Dan Pinkston of Troy University. Thanks very much to you both for your insights. Thank you. My pleasure.